Summer Owens, and I am back with another episode of So What Success Stories. And that's stories of people who've been successful in spite of any challenges they face in life. And today I have a tremendous honor to be talking to Luther C. McClellan. Now, if you don't know that name, you should know that name, especially if you are a University of Memphis alum, just like me. Luther C. McClellan was the first African-American student to graduate from the University of Memphis. Now, talk about a story of resilience and dealing with challenges and being successful in spite of some tremendous odds. And so I'm, I'm very excited to be talking to Mr. McClellan today. So without further ado, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'll be asking plenty of questions, so you'll have opportunity to answer questions, but tell us a little bit to get us started. Okay, I am a, a product of a uh, very diverse and uh, hectic background. Um, when I was four, just before I turned five, my mom and my dad broke up. At that time, it was four boys in the family. I was next to the oldest. When I knew anything, we were on our way to Missouri. The four boys were, and my youngest brother was two going on three. We were stair-stepped, like about a year, one month apart. My father had a very bad vice. He loved to gamble and chase women, and my mom finally got tired of it, and uh, they broke up. So we went to Missouri to live with our grandmother. Her name was Janie Watson. She was well known in the area. Everybody called her Miss Janie, white and black, call her that. She lived in a little town in southeast Missouri called Neelyville. Neelyville is about 18 miles south of uh, Papa Bluff, Missouri. She had a farm. It was a rude awakening for me to, um, we got off the train in Neelyville. We rode, I rode a horseback. There was a, uh, a cousin and I was holding on to her as she was riding a horse. And I was holding on to her with dear life as we went through uh, what is called a slough. A lot of water in a low-lying area. It was very traumatic for me to be riding through that and looking down and seeing all that muddy water down there. So we finally got to my grandmother house, which was a, it was made out of logs. And she had a big old fireplace in there. And she was a very small lady very thin. She had very distinct features, a slim face. She was about, I would say, half Indian. And she had a reputation of not taking any junk from anybody. My kind of woman. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so everyone sort of backed up when she came around. She actually would sit on the porch some days and tell her about her tell us about her experiences. She lived a rough and tough life, and she was known to carry a gun. If anyone messed with her, she would shoot at him. She never hit anyone else. Bottom line is, she expected us to, uh, you know, carry our weight. We she taught us how to feed the pig, feed the chicken, collect eggs, and help in the garden. The first year, it was a learning process. By the time I got six or seven, I was expected to do most of the thing without any soup. And we walked to school. It was about, I would guess, two or three miles. Maybe one time it was about a mile and a half. We went to another school. It was about two miles. Each one of those schools were very small. As a matter of fact, the last school I went to had about 25 students in one room, and most of the students there were my cousins. <laughs> my uh, grandmother had six daughters, no son, and three of them lived in that area. They all had large, large families, all except one, my youngest, 
aunt. She lived there with my grandmother. She she got married while I was there. I think when I was nine, she got married. The bottom line is, it was a rough, hard life. You were expected to carry your weight, and uh, that was the way I was raised. You 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 learned. You know, you you were taught things. And you were expected to do them. You know, before you went to school in the morning, you normally uh, milk the cows, uh, collect you know, fed the chickens, slot the hogs, <laughs> and you walk to school. And before you, you even get to school. You mean game back in the afternoon? You did repeated your process, and you you know you did all your homework. Some of it included uh, bringing in wood for the uh, stove. There were no utilities out there. This was really a rude awakening for us. But I was only four or five when I moved there, so I had very vague memories of anything better than that. To make a long story short, I stayed there until I was twelve, and I I left there because she passed away. She had a stroke when I was twelve, and so my mom asked for us to come back to Memphis. She was now married and uh, to her second husband. We moved to North Memphis, a place called Moldentown. You heard of Moldentown? No, I, I haven't. Well, it's, it's on, you go out Second Street, you know where Kim and the Clark is? Uh-huh. That's Moldentown. Okay, okay. Now, most of that area has now been absorbed by Kimberly Clark. I think that I, when I went over there the last time I went to the area, there was a nursing home over there now. But Moldentown was the area we moved into that they were living in. So uh, my four brothers and I were now living in Moldentown with my mother and stepfather. My first day to school, I was in seventh grade. And I've told you that the school I went to in Missouri had about 25 students, one room, most of whom were my cousins. So now I'm at Manassas High School. It's a one through 12 school, about 2,500 students, all black. I've never seen that many black people in my life. <laughs> so as I told you, the town in Missouri had 426 people in it. Now I'm in a high school with 2,500 black students, and it was a rude awakening. I walked into a classroom, my homeroom, about 35 students in there, wall-to-wall -wall students. There I was. <laughs> it, was, it, was uh, it took a while for me to, to absorb this because in the town in Missouri, as I said, 420-some people, and about it was a mixture, about 50-50, black and white, and the main street had about three grocery stores and a, and a pharmacy, I guess, there. I think there was one doctor in the area. But uh, that was about it for the town. Now I'm in this big city called Memphis. And uh, the walk from Moldentown to Manassas wasn't that great of a, a long of a walk, but it was, it was a pretty good distance. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because and I, I shared this with you. I don't know if you've heard of Bolivar, Tennessee. I have. That's where my family is from. And okay. so I'm from a small town too. And um, yeah. and the stories you just told about um, in Missouri, my my grandmother, and I'm very close to my grandmother. Um, I, I wrote a book with her uh, about her life. And so I love having these conversations and hearing about you know where you've come from and where what you've been through. And I'm looking forward to talking about it a little bit more. So I know about the milk and the cows. I haven't done it myself. <laughs> But I have definitely heard about the sto the stories of, of doing all that before you got to school. But I can I respect it so much, and I can uh, appreciate it. And I see you know the character it helps to build, and um and part of the resilience, and probably why you've been able to, you know, accomplish some of the things that you have in this program. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, you know the one thing I remember the first time my mom said we're going downtown to shop. And so we got on the bus. I understand this is a 
streetcar, I guess they call them bus. And um, she said, walk all the way to the back. And so it didn't. Okay. So we trailed all the way to the back of the bus and out on the back seat. And we went down on Main Street, saw Lowenstein and all the good big stores down there. And we walked, we were walking through Court Square and I saw a water fountain. I walked over to get the water. She said, uh-uh, you can't drink that water. I said, why? You're not allowed to drink from that fountain. So that was my uh, introduction to really segregation because in Needleville, you only, if you had one fountain in the whole town, that's where you drink the water at. And we didn't have municipal transportation called buses. We had old jalopies and buggies and wagons. There was no such thing as sitting in the back of a bus. We did go to all black school, but that, that was fine with me. They were all my cousins, you know. Right, right. So, so it wasn't a clear line of segregation in that little town. When you went out to get grocery, you walk into the grocery store and you got everything in the grocery store. You even got clothes in there. <laughs> you bought your clothes, you bought your grocery, you bought everything. And you probably you know, know everybody in there too, right? <laughs> everybody in there knew you. We go in there and we grab us some, uh, some of those little penny candies and put in our pocket because my, my grandmother was watching us. She paid, you know, before we left. We just got the candy we wanted and put it in our pocket. So in this program, I like to talk about what I call So What Success and the So What Success system. And that's learning how to overcome obstacles, eliminate excuses, and calculate your choices so that you can achieve So What Success. And that means yeah. success over any obstacles. Now, you talked about a few already. But share some of the obstacles that you, you've experienced and how you've overcome those obstacles. And we definitely want to hear about your, your, your experience at the University of Memphis. The first obstacle, you know, was poverty. So we, when I moved back to Memphis, the uh, marriage my mom had with my stepfather didn't last long. We had a sister. They had a daughter by, in that marriage, but she was only like six, six months old when we moved back to Memphis. That's the only sister I have. But the bottom line is they couldn't get along. I guess the four boys was too much for him to absorb. So she ended up a single parent. She moved out of the house and we ended up over in New Chicago, which is, you heard of New Chicago, right? I have, I have. Yes, but um, back then you didn't have welfare. You didn't have any of that, those safety nets. So we were, make a long story short, we were poor as hell. And I always had to find a job in order for me to make, to have spending money. And one of my duties, I felt duty was to help with the expenses of the house. So all the way through high school, I had jobs. Some, some of them were 40 hour week job, like 40 to 12, working in the restaurant, washing dishes. And I remember watching, having a job for quite a while, East Memphis on Poplar. Place was called the Knickerbocker Hotel, Knickerbocker Restaurant. I don't think it's there anymore, but it was right in front of the uh, golf course out there. Okay. And uh, the owner was a guy named Mr. Bell. He reminded me of, uh, he didn't know how to smile. <laughs> but the bottom line is, you know, you work 40 hours, you get $25. And I would give, you know, at least $10 went toward the expenses of the house. So my mom needed that to, you know, help with the grocery. 
that wasn't the only one doing it. My other brothers were doing the same thing, helping out with the expenses. And uh, so there we, we, we never really, everything was a, was a, a challenge. You know, making sure we had enough food, making sure the rent was paid and making sure we had some clothes to wear. It was a challenge, you know, and we all accepted it. And we, you know, we all had little part-time jobs to help with the expenses. Because my mom, you know, she she had a little daughter who was two or three years old, so she she didn't have anyone to leave her with. She was generally at home fixing dinner, you know. So it, it was just rough. Yeah. You know, people tell me how how they didn't realize they were poor until they uh, looked back on it. I knew all you along know. how poor I was. There was no doubt in my mind, we were poor. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we, we subsisted on beans, you know, bulk food, you know. Once in a while you get some chicken or something like that, but the main issue was keeping the rent, having food in there, and, uh, and uh, making sure everyone was warm and so forth. I can really, again, I really appreciate your story just because I'm so close to both of my grandmothers. Um, one will be 90, 99 next month and one will be Whoa. 96 in April. Wow. And I wrote books with both of them. And so I've talked to both of them and I visited them, you know, over all these years. Mm -hmm. And um, and I can appreciate everything because they were both really poor. Grew up very poor as well with a lot of kids. And um, yeah. And so I've heard the story, you know, and, and I can really appreciate you. Share with me a little bit about um, how you got to, to the University of Memphis and some of those, um, the obstacles okay. with that. Let's, let me go back one step. One of the advantages of going to a one-room school is you heard the, the lessons, you learn what the kids above you were learning. So even though I was... Uh, as I went through school, I remember one day the teacher said, uh, you are now in the third grade. He skipped me from the first to the third. And I, I didn't realize what that meant. I guess I had learned by listening what the third, second grade kids were doing. So I, I, I was well aware of, you know, we had to do a lot of memory poems and so forth and I would, memorize the poems of the kids ahead of me. So I knew a lot of poetry, you know, House by the Side of the Road and If and all that stuff. So I knew a lot of poetry, memorized a lot of poetry. And I knew a lot of things that kids in the grades ahead of me knew. So when I got to Manassas, I was very much up to date with what I should know as a seventh grader or eighth grader. So I made very good grades. I should, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. And uh, I finished, when I finished high school, I, uh, I had a very high, I was honor society and top 10 and all that stuff. So, and uh, I looked around and I knew one thing. I observed, you have to observe when you're growing up, if you want to survive. I observed what 
the men in that area jobs they had. They were working at Homco and North Method Lama Company and very few of them got on in the good job like Firestone. But the average guy, man out there was making 40, 50, $60 a week. And they'd come home, they would be filthy with, they'd be sweaty and dirty and they had worked really hard for that 50 or $60 a week. And I knew that I was not going to end up doing that. So I knew that my only salvation was to go to college and, be, and get a, you know, you know go, go into a profession. But I did not want to be a manual laborer. I saw what that entailed. So the lesson I learned by watching them is go to college, get you a degree. So when I graduated, there was uh, one option for me, that was Lemoyne. And um, so I took the interest, whatever they call it, and they, and they gave me a, a scholarship and I supplemented that with a job working at City of Memphis Hospital, E.H. Crump Hospital at the time. And I worked 4012. I went to, went to uh, Lemoyne during the day. Then uh, the, I saw a big headline that after my freshman year in Lemoyne, it was, it was like April or May, they announced that Memphis State was ordered to desegregate and had to do it immediately. They had given them that order before they got one year reprieve. They said they wanted one year to get ready for desegregation. They were ordered to desegregate in 58, but they didn't desegregate until 59. So I said, wow, that's great. It's a state-supported school. We, you know, we pay taxes, so I felt we had a right to go there, you know. So I just got on the bus when, when I heard it on the news. I got on the bus and rode out to Memphis State, walked up to the admission uh, and said, I want to apply to go to Memphis State. I didn't now, tell me about this before you go too far. Now that takes bravery, right? It sounds cool. It's great. They want, you know, they're being mandated, but for you to say, raise your hand and say, I want to do it. Tell me about that. What made you say that? Well, two things. It was very expensive going to Lemoyne. And number two is, as I told you, this, I just felt I had a right to go there because it was state-supported school. The closest state-supported school that I was allowed to go to was Tennessee State in Nashville. And I know that it was a lot cheaper than going to Lemoyne. I went there purely on economics. I looked at it and said, this, I can afford to go there and I want to go there because I know it's a larger school. So, and I felt I had a right to go there. So that's why I got on the bus and went out there and put an application in. They gave me an exam and I looked at it. I said, it's really like a high school test or something. But I took it, you know. And uh, I didn't hear any more from them until, and I assume, here's the other thing. I assume when they announced that Memphis State was being desegregated, I assume there would be a lot of black students applying. I assumed that there would be two or 300 people putting the application in to go to Memphis State. 
So when I saw the headline that there were eight students going there, it shocked me. I said, so I just assumed there would be a lot more students going through Memphis State than eight. But uh, the first day there, they were ready for us. I met with Dean Robinson uh, and he, he, he laid down all the limitations. First of all, he let us know that they fought like hell to keep us out of there. He let it be, it was no secret. He let us know they didn't want us there. They fought like hell to keep us out of Memphis State. But he said, but we finally lost. Now, I want, you know, he wanted us to, he's going to pre-register us so you don't have to register with the white kids. And he wanted us to go to classes and be, you know, leave there by noon. No cafeteria, no student union. The only building we could lounge in was the library and go to our classrooms. And when I registered for my classes, I was taking inorganic chem. Now I was taking you know, inorganic qualitative, quantitative inorganic chemistry. And it was labs were in the afternoon. I said, well, I can't leave the room. I got a two o'clock lab. Uh, so I was the only guy out there in the afternoon. But I, I, I must admit two things. I was a math and chemistry with my primary areas. And uh, my freshman year there, first year there, second year in college, I was, I, I had calculus first. First thing on Monday morning, seven o'clock in the morning, I had a calculus class. <laughs> And the uh, instructor was a Dr. Kaltenborn, German PhD from MIT. And he had this habit of saying, it's intuitively obvious. Anything he threw at you was intuitively obvious. But um, I got along with, with them in those classes because I guess they recognized, they, they uh, respected you if you had the ability to do the work in the sciences. So I, I didn't have a lot of, uh, I, I didn't find it, it was not a lot of uh, uh, prejudice in the sciences. The prejudice were in the liberal arts. Interesting. You know, histories and the, the other thing that you had to take. But in the math and the chemistries, they sort of respect you for if you knew it, you knew it, you didn't, you didn't, you know. And uh, in the chemistry lab, I had no problem finding a partner for my labs. And in the, uh, in the math calculus, it's only 15 of us in the class and I had no problem in that. But the, uh, the main problem was, I say, in the liberal arts. I didn't give you all our restrictions. We, not, we were not allowed, don't go to phys ed, they waived phys ed for us. They waived ROTC, which was mandatory. And they told us, don't go to sporting events. They wanted us to become invisible. The minimum impact on the white student in, at the university. Be invisible. So the, the first year, this really only, this primarily occurred the first year. Because after that, you know, 
we didn't have the restriction about cafeteria and student union and all that stuff. But uh, I never went to any, any of the athletic events. Uh, I didn't take ROTC, even though I wanted Air Force ROTC. But, um, and I learned very quickly, I could walk down the hall and then I didn't see them. You know, they didn't see me, I didn't see them. So I could walk down the hall all day long and not speak to someone, it would be fine with me. Just leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. So that was how I, I didn't really establish any close friends among the whites in the three years that I was there. And it was fine with me because when I left there in the afternoon, I had to go get a job, I had to go to my job. And when I got off my job, I had to study. <laughs> so uh, some days, you know, some nights I would get two or three hours sleep because I had to do my homework, I had to study for exams and all this stuff. And I would take no dose pills and keep me awake. And on weekend, I caught up, I sleeping all day on Saturday sometimes. So yeah, it was stressful working and going to school and keeping up with the, uh, the lessons, you know. Well, let me ask you this question. So the next part of the SOA success system, so it's overcoming obstacles and then eliminating excuses. Cause you had every excuse not to make it. You had every excuse not to even be in college, you had every excuse not to graduate um, and not to be successful. What were some of the excuses that you like, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna let that be an excuse. And how did you get through those excuses? How did you get rid of those excuses and push past them? It never entered my mind that I wasn't going to go to college and graduate. That was a given to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, for as long as I tell you, being observant, looking around, I knew from day one, I was going to go to college and I never ever considered not graduating. That was a must, I had to do that. My grandmother, one day I was uh, in the fields and I was looking up in the sky and I watched looking at the airplane and my grandmother said, she's called me Elsie. She said, Elsie, um, you gotta go, you really need to go to college and get you a degree because you're not gonna make it out here as a laborer. <laughs> she told you. <laughs> I, I remember that from day one, I was like eight or nine. And uh, she told me that either, either you go to college or you marry a rich woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I observed what it was like not going to college. So yeah. <laughs> and, I, and you know what, I, I get the observation. I know you don't know a whole lot about me and my story, but I was a, a teen mom. I had my son when I was 15. And, um, and it was similar to what you just said when people asked me what pushed me and motivated me. And it was me also observing, observing oh, yeah. what, what life was like for people who had babies young or for single moms. And I was like, that's not gonna be me. That's not gonna be my journey. And that pushed me and that motivated me too. But let's oh, yeah. so the next part of it is calculating choices. And so you had to make some decisions. So you overcame obstacles, you eliminated excuses, and you had to make some, some decisions. And, um, and, and you talked about a lot of decisions already that you made, but um, and one of those decisions was, I'm going to the University of Memphis. 
talk to me about some of those decisions and um, how you made those decisions and and how you um, calculated them. Because for a lot of people, you said you were expecting, you know, more students there. And so for a lot of students, it probably was, I would guess, scary to consider going. Um, but you've done a lot of things. It's, I think in your life that were not the easy thing to do. Tell me about some of those decisions. Okay, as I was right, as I was at university, but one thing I became acutely aware of is the career opportunity for blacks in Memphis. If you even with a degree, your your career opportunities were limited. Mostly, I found that most of the people with a degree normally were teachers or they worked for the postal service. And uh, I didn't want either one of those, but I, I, I wanted, and I had long ago wanted to be going to the Air Force. And uh, I didn't want to go as enlisted. I wanted to be an Air Force officer. So when they told me I couldn't take ROTC, that eliminated that for a while. So what I had to do, so I wanted to go to Air Force for a reason. I remember reading a lot about the, the different careers in the Air Force, air traffic control and computers that were just coming on the scene. And I figured I could get trained in the, in the technical career field and get, get opportunity to advance in those areas. So in order to become a, a commission officer, I had to go all the way up to Nashville, go to Boston, Nashville to Seward Air Base to take the Air Force Officer Qualification Test. So I took the test and I passed it. And I was admitted to Officer Training School. And I was scheduled to go there in August, right after graduation from uh, college. So once I graduated from Memphis State, I went to Austin Training School in Lackland Air Base, Texas. Rode my first airplane <laughs> to get there from Memphis International Airport and rode on this DC-3 that bounced me all over the place. <laughs> we finally landed in, uh, in uh, San Antonio. It was quite a rude awakening, you know, to go into the military because I had no military background. But 12 weeks of Austin Training School and I did receive my commission as a second lieutenant in the Air Force. And they sent me to Kaysler Air Force Base, Mississippi, the electronic school there. They, they wanted me to become an air traffic controller. And I, 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 they told me initially, you're gonna be in nuclear weapons. So I said, I said I'm gonna be developing nuclear weapons. But then I found I was an air traffic controller and that not, was not what I really wanted, mm -hmm. but I did finish air traffic control school and, and I went to uh, my first assignment. The first thing I wanted, I started doing is applying for other, other schools because I didn't want to stay in air traffic. So they sent me to, uh, after two years, I went to uh, radar counter countermeasure school, which was, uh, really good training, but I really wanted to be in computers. So after four years, I finally 
persuaded the, the Air Force to send me to computer school. And that's how I got into computers. After I was there for two couple of years, I, I spent eight years in the Air Force trying to get the training that I wanted. So I finally got trained and um, of all things, the, the first job opportunity I saw that I really wanted was with the Federal Aviation Administration, FAA, Air Traffic Control of all things. But they had openings in, um, at the, at the uh, National Aviation Experimental Center in New Jersey. And uh, I was hired as a mathematician then. So that was quite a rude awakening. Here I am just out of the Air Force as a captain. And I walk into this facility, which was an old Navy base with, with barracks, old barracks. And I walked into the personnel officer and I told him I was Luther McClellan. I had been hired out of Washington, not locally. I got interviewed by um, uh, the research and development director for FAA because the software that we were using in Air Force was the software that the FAA was going to adapt for their automation for air traffic control system. So I was already trained in that system. They wanted me on board. So I walked in the personnel and I said, I'm Luther McClellan. And the personnel guy almost died on the spot. You see him turn beat red. He thought that I was white. You know, Captain Air Force, Luther McClellan, da-da-da-da, went to Memphis State, da-da-da-da. So he assumed that was white. And he immediately began to tap dance. And I picked up on it. By that time, I, I knew that he was going to try to find a way to not hire me. So after a couple of days, he said, well, we got a temporary job, but we, we really don't have no slots. But I know that the director for research and development in Washington said he had five slots up there. So I went to civil rights office and I said, I want to put in a complaint. I was supposed to get a permanent job here and the personnel guy said there's no slots. So it so happened, the investigation were being ran by Department of Transportation, which is which the FAA was up. Under that department. And about two weeks later, they came down and they found out that the guy was lying when he said he had no slots. And he made them bring it back that night and hire me. The personnel officer was reassigned somewhere else. That's what I was about to say. Did you have to work with him? <laughs> no, he, that was during the time the civil rights were coming to the forefront in 71 and 72. Uh, I think yeah, Johnson, uh, somebody, I don't remember who president was. Might've been Johnson, but anyway, civil rights was very, you know, affirmative action, EEO, but really catching on back then. So that was good. But that place was like a gospel. Mm -hmm. All the chief management were white. All senior management were white males. And most of the blacks were in, low-paying jobs. None of them was in the professional series. And the, the grades were very low. So they, they were really fighting this 
idea of black professionals coming on board. But I, I actually spent my whole career there. And I moved up through the ranks from a mathematician to a section chief to a branch to a division to the program director over the largest program in FAA when I got out. So I moved up a long way, a lot of steps. And I was able to recruit and hire and promote a lot of minorities and females, mainly because the FAA was cited on several occasions for the lack of diversity. So when I was, when I was given the assignment program money for the advanced automation program, which was a multi-billion dollar program, I was told by the administrator of FAA, we'll give you slots, but you got to hire minorities and female because we are deficient in that area. You got to show me how you plan to do that. I said, okay. So I gave him, I told him how we're going to do it. We said, we're going to go to HBCUs. We're going to recruit. We're going to go down to North Carolina A&T, Tuskegee. We're going to go to Atlanta. We're going to hire. We're going to hire minority. We're going to go with Puerto Rico. We're going to hire Hispanics. We're going to recruit and hire minorities, females. And he said, okay, I'll give you these slots and show me how you're going to do it. So over the next year, I hired 30 sons. And he was very excited because they needed that diversity in the FAA. So I think that's been awesome. You've had an amazing journey. And I know there's so much more <laughs> that you've been through and there's so much more that you've oh, been yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I appreciate you sharing from you being a little boy all the way into your career. And you've achieved what I call so was success. So you learn how to overcome obstacles and eliminate excuses and calculate choices and achieve what I call so was success and that's success in spite of those obstacles. Cause you were counted out. I'm sure lots of people, um, you have every reason why you couldn't have been successful. Every reason why you couldn't have made it, but you um, were were very successful. And I and and you know, and I told you this before we started the interview that you not only did you reach back in your profession and hire minorities and women, but people like me. I'm successful because of the sacrifice and the efforts that you made, and you never met me until till you met me a, a couple years ago. But it's I was able to be at the University of Memphis and do the things that I've done and be as successful as I've been as a student and as a professional because of you and the rest of the Memphis State Aid and the, the choices that you made. And I, I thank you for that. Um, and I know lots of students thank you and applaud you. And I'm so excited to be sharing your story even more. So I have two more questions for you. One is success. How would you define success? And success is, uh, to me, success is being able to make a difference. I believe that God didn't put you here to just be like a lump on a log. You know, you were here for a, a purpose. And I believe my purpose is to make a difference in the world. And uh, every chance, every opportunity I got, I try to make a difference. If I, if I see someone struggling, they need my help, I'm there, I try to be there to help them. Uh, you mentioned minorities and, and uh, reaching back. I, I, I feel though uh, 
if you if you get to a certain level, you it's your job if you if you are uh, to reach back and and help someone bring that person forward. You you, you don't live on an island. I found that in my as I moved up in the FAA, that uh, I always made sure that I gave every opportunity in the world to the minorities and females in my organization, because I wanted them to have the opportunity to, to grow. And I also found that it's good to have minorities and females behind you and supporting you and they, if they know that you are for them and you look, you are, you are, you're looking after their interests, they're going to support you. And I, I found this to be very troubling when I've seen certain minorities get in position of authority and they get amnesia. They don't remember nobody below them and they don't reach back to help anyone as far as I'm concerned, they're not successful. You're not successful if you don't make a difference in the lives of other people. And I think that's powerful. And, and that's something you've definitely done through the Black Alumni Chapter of the University of Memphis, which was uh, originally named in your honor. And now there's an endowed scholarship that's named in your honor. And, and it's a beautiful thing to me to see you still attending those chapter meetings um, and supporting the students that are leading that, um, you've definitely been successful. And like you said, not just because you've attained success in your career, but because of exactly your own definition and, and, and making a difference. And you've definitely made a difference in so many ways and, and forever you will make a difference. Here's my last question for you. What advice would you give to someone who wants to be successful, but they have obstacles, they have challenges. And this could be a student, it could be a young professional, it could be somebody well in their career and they wanna do something different. What advice, I know you are full of wisdom. <laughs> what, what's one piece of advice you would give? Perseverance. Don't, don't give up after the first show, at first attempt. You know, once you try, you keep trying. Never give up. Uh, Anything is possible, I, I believe, if you, if you put enough effort into it. You know, don't just give a lick and walk away from it. Hang in there. Uh, I just don't think too many times I've seen people, I've heard people say, you know, I, I could have gone to college. I said, I don't want to hear that. I said, if you could have gone to college, you should have gone to college. That, so don't give me any excuses about what you could have done coulda, woulda, shoulda, you shoulda gone to college. It's still not too late to go to college. That's what I say, you still can, right. So don't, you know, I, I, I used to hear that and uh, I, it really irritated me uh, that someone tells you that, well, I could have gone there. And, you know, they, they, they try to poo-poo it. I say, if you had an opportunity, you should have taken it. And it's still not too late to do it. I encourage you to go to college. But, uh, I, I'm a firm believer in putting your eye on a sparrow and, you know, and go for it, hang in there. There's no, just don't quit. I, I don't believe in quitting. I love <laughs> I just, it. I, I love it. Keep pressing well, thank, on. 
yes, keep pushing and don't let anything stop you. And I think you are a perfect example. Again, you had many reasons why you could have stopped and why you could have given up. And most people would have understood it but you didn't let that be an excuse and you didn't let anything hold you back. And I just want to thank you for your time. Um, again, it's been my honor to share this time with you and, um, and thank you for sharing your story. And I'm excited to be, to be able to share with even more people. No, I, I enjoyed talking to you and uh, you, you've overcome quite a few obstacles yourself and I can compliment you on, on hanging in there and, you know, you, you know, off to a rough start, but you, you came out in a wonderful situation. I'm very proud of you. That and means a lot to me. I really appreciate that. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love to see successful blacks and, you know, and I, I just love to see that. And I, I, I am so worried and concerned about our black males and the, and the lack of uh, black males in, in, in management jobs. Too many of our black males are being killed on the streets or incarcerated, just dropped out. I, I think uh, in some way we got to motivate and recapture. Uh, we, we're almost having a lost generation of black males in our environment. And it's, it's, it's very, it's scary. I just don't, I, I just think we, we got to put more effort to reach those black males in our, you know, and try to pull them up and motivate them, get them off the skid road. I totally agree. That's part of what I do too, is work with young people um, and doing mentoring. Uh, I'm a really am excited about the things, some of the things that the University of Memphis is, is doing and focusing on too, African-American yeah. males too. Um, I couldn't agree with you more, but I also think that um, what I'm trying to do, a part of what I'm trying to do is, is share your story and share the stories of other successful um, people, African-American men, African-American women, and then just people in general um, who have dealt with and overcome so much more than many of us will ever go through and, and are on the other side of it. So again, thank you for allowing me to um, have this time with you and to be able to, to share your story. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed talking to you. I enjoyed it too. <laughs>